We're in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John's Gospel, in the first chapter, we're going to read verses 1 to 5, and then glance further down the chapter to verse 14. John's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning our reading in the first verse, verse 1 of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life uh, was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Verse 14, And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we trust the Lord will bless the reading of his precious word this morning. We're going to think this morning about the ultimate Christmas journey. Now to date we've made three Christmas journeys in the month of December. We came with Mary from Nazareth down to Judea to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And then we traveled with Mary and Joseph together as they walked 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And then last Lord's Day, we looked at the journey of the wise men as they came from the east, from Persia, all the way across the Fertile Crescent, down into northern Israel, down to Bethlehem, a journey of about 1,000 miles. But today we're going to consider the ultimate Christmas journey. The journey of the Lord Jesus as he leaves the portals of heaven to be born in the manger at Bethlehem. This is the greatest Christmas journey ever made by anyone, anywhere, anytime. It was a journey, quite literally, of light years. Now, we know a great deal about the place Jesus came to, but we tend to forget the place that Jesus left from. You know, Jesus Christ wasn't just conceived of Mary and born, like you and I were conceived of our mothers and born. Rather, he came from heaven to earth. He was sent to be conceived and born. And in that respect, the Bible speaks volumes with one verse in Galatians 4.4, where it says this, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Now, if we've observed anything about the Christmas journeys we've looked at thus far in this series, the thing that perhaps has stuck with us is it wasn't easy for anybody. It wasn't easy for the teenager Mary to make the initial journey down to Judea and there to meet with her cousin Elizabeth and to declare that she was pregnant and that out of, out of marriage. It wasn't easy also for Mary and Joseph to make that road trip all the way from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Not on a flat plain as is often portrayed on our Christmas cards, but on a hilly and rocky terrain all the way down with Mary heavily pregnant. And it wasn't easy for the wise men 
to travel all that way from Persia, some 30 days journey, to get to Bethlehem only to be threatened by the presence of Herod. So of all the people that came to Bethlehem on that first Christmas, we could say that the Lord Jesus in some respect had the easiest journey. And yet with all, it was perhaps the most difficult journey of all to make. So although the Lord Jesus didn't come, they didn't come uh, in terms of, uh, terms of the, his journey, didn't come down a rocky road. Uh, it wasn't the miles that was the problem. It wasn't the distance that was the problem. Indeed, he had the smoothest ride of all uh, to Bethlehem and Mary's womb. So it wasn't the form of transport that was the problem. What made his pain and his trip so difficult was the changes involved. You know, some of us don't like change. You're one of those people who don't like change. You know, the older you get, you find it more and more difficult to change, don't you? You get stuck in your ways. And perhaps nothing says that more than the Christmas season because you have your traditions and you don't want to change those traditions. Some people resent change. I remember a lady one time when I went to England and I went and visited all the church members and uh, I visited with this one lady, and she said to me, I hope you're not going to change anything. And I says, well, what do you mean? She says, well, I don't like change. And I hope you're not going to change anything. I said, well, I'm sure some things will change. She says, oh, well, I don't like change at all. I really hope you don't change anything. And I said, well, I've had to change. She says, what do you mean? I says, well, I've had to change churches. And I've had to change countries. And my wife has had to change. She's had to change her job and had to change her home. And my children have had to change. They've had to change their schools. So I don't see why you wouldn't have to change. And a little later on, we had a holiday Bible club. And uh, I made the cardinal sin of moving the sacred table. Now, I'm not speaking about the Lord's table. Not that that's a sacred table either. But, uh, but uh, I, I moved a table out of a position. And this lady came in, and she was very irate. And she said, who moved that table? And I said, I moved that table. And she says, that table doesn't go there. I says, it does go there, because I put it there. <laughs> she says, well, it's never gone there before. I says, that may be, but that's where it's going now. And we had this rather ridiculous conversation. You see, we struggle with change. We find it difficult to make adjustments, to adapt to a new situation. But I want you to think about some of the changes that the Lord Jesus made on that first Christmas journey. And here's the first journey, the first Christmas change that Jesus made. It was a change of location from the throne to the manger. We mustn't forget that ever before Christ came to Bethlehem, he was already a king. You know, the wise men came into, uh, into Jerusalem and they said to Herod, where is he that is born king of the Jews? They weren't talking about one who would be king. They were talking about one who was already a king. Now we know prophetically that the Lord Jesus is going to make that journey again from heaven to earth. He's going to establish his throne in Jerusalem and he will rule and reign upon the earth someday as king of kings and lord of lords. But we mustn't forget that he has always been king. The psalmist says in Psalm 10, 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. 
Isaiah says, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Jeremiah says, But the Lord is the true God, he is the living God, he is the everlasting king. Domitian says, Thou, O Lord, re- remainest forever, thy throne from generation to generation. And you get into the New Testament, and what does Paul write to Timothy? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So I want you to understand that lying in the manger that particular Christmas morning, that first Christmas, was the King of glory. The King of glory. Picture it. The Almighty The creator God, the Lord of all, he who spoke and it was done. He who said, let there be light, and there was light. Uh, He whose breath simply blew and divided the depths of the Red Sea and opened a causeway so that the children of Israel could walk across on dry land. He whose finger marked the tablets of stone and inscribed within them the Ten Commandments and sent them and gave them by his angels to Moses. He is now the one that we're speaking about who is lying in a crib, who is lying in a trough, helpless and vulnerable and subject to his own creation's care. Sleeping peacefully in the midst of a sheepfold. What a journey the Lord Jesus made when he came from heaven to earth. A change of location from a throne to a manger. But then there was a second change. There was a change of form from freedom to limitation. Some people have this idea that Jesus always had a body. He did not. In our Lord's table this morning, Our brother read from the book of Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7 where it says he took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. That was not his form before. That was not his likeness before. You say, what was he like before? Before Jesus came to Bethlehem, he was in spirit form as God is a spirit. But after Bethlehem, he becomes a man, and he becomes a man forever. He is God's man and man's God. This is the remarkable story of the incarnation. This is the truth of the Christmas journey. Here's what Hebrews 10 and 5 says, and they, and they puts these words in the mouth of the Lord Jesus. A body thou hast prepared for me. A body thou hast prepared for me. That's what Mary had placed in her womb. That body was the one that was placed into the crib. And before Jesus took upon himself that body, he had not known any kind of human limitation. You see, now we read our Bibles and we read of times when he hungered and times when he was thirsty, and times when he wearied. Well, these are terms that we don't normally associate with the divine. We don't think of God being hungry, or God being thirsty, or God being weary. In fact, the psalmist says that the God of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. So that's not an experience of God when we speak about God proper. But we speak about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now God takes on human form, and he, and he changes from free 
freedom to limitation. And when he made that trip from heaven to earth, he knew all that it would entail, and yet he volunteered himself for it. So that the writer of Hebrews says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted or tried like as we are, yet without sin. In other words, he tells us that our Savior walked in our shoes, that he experienced what we experienced, that he knows in reality everything that you have experienced in reality. That trip meant a change of form. And then his trip involved a change of context from adoration to mockery. You know, one of the most striking descriptions of the pre-incarnate Christ is found in the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 6. We've been talking about this prophecy on Wednesday evenings as we thought about the angels. And it says in the opening verses of that prophecy, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And above it stood the seraphims, a form of angel. Each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's where the Lord Jesus was before he came. He was seated upon a throne, surrounded by the angelic host, with the seraphim right by his side, proclaiming him for all of heaven to hear that he is the thrice holy God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so he commissions Isaiah the prophet at this point. He tells him to go and tell the people, hear ye and but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. Now I'd like you to turn to John's Gospel, chapter 12, for a moment, because I want you to see that the one that is speaking to Isaiah, the one who is at the heart of heaven's adoration, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is confirmed in the Gospel of John in John chapter 12 and verse 39 it says therefore they could not believe because Isaiah said again and we just read it he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted that I should heal them and notice verse 41 these things said Isaiah when he saw his glory, speaking of Christ, and speak of him. What a change. You don't like change? Think about this change. From adoration to mockery. You see, when Jesus arrives in Bethlehem, the whole context of his presence is, for, is, is changed. Far from being adored, now he is scorned. He's to be rejected. He's to be mocked. He's to be spat upon. He's to be humiliated. You know, I wonder if you were required to make a journey like that. If I were to say to you, now listen, I want you to go to such and such a place. And when you get there, people are going to humiliate you. And they're going to mock you in front of others. And they're going to spit in your face. And ultimately, they're going to beat on you. Would you like to go? 
probably say, not a chance. Send somebody else. I'm not going for that. But friends, that's what the Lord Jesus signed up for when he made the ultimate Christmas journey from heaven to earth. You see, we couldn't forego our our reputation. We couldn't forgo our respectability uh, to be deliberately reviled. We couldn't forsake our home comforts to be castigated in the way that he was. We couldn't abandon our loving surroundings to face the most bitter and personal hatred of men. And yet that's what Jesus did when he left heaven for Bethlehem. His trip also involved a change in status from being uncontested to contradicted. You think about where Jesus was before he came. In heaven, his rule and his reign was totally uncontested. Anything he said was done. Every every now and then I try this in our house. It doesn't work, you know. Sometimes I say to my wife, will you make me a cup of tea? And she'd say, well, I'll go in a minute. It's usually what she says. I'll go in a minute. And then I jokingly say, stress jokingly, say, I am your head. And I am commanding you to go. You know what I discovered in that moment? That my role is not uncontested. (laughs) That, That I don't have that same rule. That I don't carry that same degree of weight. But the Lord Jesus, all joking aside, when he said, let there be... There was. When he spoke, it was done. Millions of angels were at his back and call. His word was and is law. His word was and is truth. His will was done in heaven. And whatever he spoke was spoken with authority. And his authority was never in doubt. But once he came to earth, that ultimate Christmas journey changed everything. His right to rule was questioned as the chief priests and the Pharisees said, By what authority doest thou these things? His place in the Godhead was questioned with the words, If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. His power to save was doubted by his enemies as they cried out, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. And his source of power was insulted by the remark, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. Far from being hailed as a king, he was harangued as a con artist, as a crook, as a criminal, until in one final act of rebellion, they were heard to cry, We will not have this man To reign over us. Then his trip involved a change of time zones. Going from the eternal to the temporal. Now, if you have traveled at all, I expect you may well have experienced at some time a change in time zone. You've gone to another country. uh, And of course, the further you go the greater the time zone change. So we, many of us know what it feels like to be knocked out by an hour or two. 
You know, when our ladies were in Kenya, they were three hours, I think, were you ahead of us? Ahead of us? Three hours ahead of us. And so when they came back, their time clock, their body clock was altered and their body was functioning Kenyan time for a while until they settled back in to UK time. We all know how that feels. But the idea of timelessness, of eternality, is foreign to us. The eternal state is not something that we naturally experience, nor is it the environment by which we are governed. We're governed constantly by time. Every day at some point, one of us will look at another and say, what time is it? What time is it? Why do you want to know? Well, I've got to be such and such a place. Oh, this program's coming on. Oh, I'm going to meet so-and-so. Oh, I've got to get the oven on. We ask constantly, what time is it? But before he came to Bethlehem, Jesus never once had to ask what time it is because God dwells outside of time. He is eternal. Time means nothing in eternity. And yet in Matthew 4, 17, we read this. From that time, Jesus began to preach. Matthew 14, his disciples came to him and said, uh, uh, said, this is a desert place and the time is now past. Send the multitude away that we may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals. They said, it's dinner time. Suddenly he hears himself say, my time has not yet come. He sends his disciples in search of a room to celebrate the Passover conveying to its owner the words, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. You know, you and I cannot conceive how restrictive that must have been to the person of Christ, that that change was forced upon him. Just as we have difficulty understanding our own transition from this period of time into eternity. You see, we can't get our heads around eternity foreverness. You know, I've seen various preachers try to illustrate eternity and, uh, you know, use all kinds of little object lessons and methods to try and convey the idea of eternity. But nothing even comes close to the reality. And so we wrestle and and we grasp the concept of eternity, having no experience or no base with which to work on that idea. But so too the experience of time was one which in his experience was alien to the Lord. And then ultimately, his Christmas journey would mean a change of role from crown wearer to cross bearer. You see, upon his departure from heaven, the Lord was sovereign and judge. But he came to Bethlehem to be a servant and a savior. He says this, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. We have to remember that in the throes of this Christmas journey, Bethlehem wasn't the destination. Bethlehem was a stopover, a layover. Calvary was the destination. 
That's where he was heading. And there can be no doubt that the movement from, of the Lord Jesus from heaven to earth is the ultimate Christmas journey. Indeed, it's the ultimate journey of all time, for all time. But you know the amazing, most amazing thing about it is that he did it for the love of us. And that brings us right to the heart of the gospel, doesn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God, listen now, sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's what Christmas is about. God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's the miracle of Christmas. The love of God wrapped in, in, a, in a human form where, where God swaps his throne for a manger, alters his form from spirit to flesh, abandons the adoration of the angels for the mockery of men, momentarily relinquishes his right to rule and reign in order to answer the questions of doubters, transferred from the eternal into the temporal and exchanged his golden crown. For a wooden cross. So that John says, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, even as the glory of the Father, full of what's the next word? Grace and truth. Thank God for the Christmas story. I thank God for the expression of this, of his great love wherewith he loved us. Thank God for the ultimate Christmas journey when the Word, God, became flesh and dwelt among us. Today, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want to tell you that the greatest gift of all is on offer to you this morning. That you can be born again of the Spirit of God. That you can have eternal life, that you can know that your sins are forgiven. You can be reconciled to God. You can become his child this morning. But all you have to do is recognize the reality of the ultimate Christmas journey. That Jesus came not just to Bethlehem to give us a warm and fuzzy feeling at Christmas time. He came to go to a cross to shed his blood to pay your sin debt and my sin debt. And if we trust in him, we can go free, be forgiven, be reconciled to God, and know him as our Savior. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, the greatest gift you could receive this Christmas season is the gift of God's Son. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts. This morning we're going to stand again.